Welcome to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com, a place to talk about the experiences that we call life. We'll share the sorrow and the joy that makes this earthy existence real and makes us who we are. Now, here's your host, Renee Steelman. Welcome. Good morning, everyone. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, once again, you are joining me. I am located in the Pacific Northwest, and we are having another fabulous day today. Um, the I think the weather report is saying possibly high 70s, uh, maybe even 80. Uh, so it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful day. And I have a fabulous show for you today. Okay, any of you that have a penny jar, put a penny in the jar because I swear today I am not going to say uh, let's see. I'm not going to say fabulous, and I'm not going to say amazing. And every time I do, put a penny in the jar, and um, I, I don't know what you're going to do with it. But anyway, uh, I, I need a rubber band to snap on my wrist to stop saying those two words. But, you know, sometimes things are just amazing, and they're just fabulous, and so I can't stop myself from saying them. And today is going to be exceptional, so it will definitely fall into that category. I hope that I'm finding all of you today positive, productive, and prayerful. And the subject that we have today is autism. And I would wager to guess that autism has touched every one of your lives. Um, if any of you don't know what autism is, it really is a spectrum disorder. It's uh, a general term for a group of complex disorders of brain development. And a wonderful website to go on is aut autismspeaks.org. And it's a great website, and they have a lot of information on there, which, which we are going to be go going over today. Um, I think the most startling thing about autism is the um, identification of it. They are now saying that one in 68 American children will be diagnosed as being on the spectrum. And, um, and that is such an increase from where it was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, they're saying that there is an estimated one out of 42 boys and one in 189 girls are diagnosed with autism in the United States. And, you know, autism has definitely touched, you know, my life, my family's life. Um, I have grandchildren that are diagnosed on the spectrum. Um, they would fall into probably I have some of them that are more into the Asperger's category. And um, I have one grandson who is um, he's I don't know if I would call him nonverbal because he is verbal, but um, he's not quite three and a half and um, but he is getting some early intervention and he is starting to talk a little bit but you know milestones that um, that most children hit um, you know you know he wasn't really hitting all of those milestones and so that was a, a big indication but my guest today is Catherine Seeley and Catherine is a good friend of mine that I have known for gosh over 10 years. And I met Catherine um, when my daughter, my first daughter, uh, was getting married. Catherine is a makeup artist, and she lives in the Portland area, Portland, Oregon area, and is definitely 
um, the makeup artist to the stars in the Portland area. And actually, she travels all over. Um, and she's, uh, I'm going to have her introduce herself and tell you a little bit more. But she is a wonderful, wonderful, kind-hearted person. And when I first met her, she was a single lady. And it's been fun to watch her get married and have children. And, and um, one of her children has been diagnosed with autism. And so we're going to talk to Catherine about that. So, Catherine, how are you today? Good morning, Renee. I am doing wonderful, and this is such an honor to join you and your um, audience to talk about such an important subject. Yes, yes, and I appreciate you taking uh, – Catherine has a crazy, crazy schedule. And, uh, you know, I think it's fun. Catherine, as I mentioned, when I first met you, you were just a single lady. Um, I think you were dating Wayne, or you guys have, you guys have known each other since you were children, right? Or was it just college? Uh, well, we were high school sweethearts. Um, so okay. We've been together for many, many years, but chasing jobs all over the country and before settling down in Portland to start our family. So, yes, we were together for a long time. Okay. Yeah, and you were. You were traveling all over the place uh, when I first met you. And um, and so, and you guys got married, and then how long before you had children? Well, you know, uh, I was getting up there in age, and so I had to do a career shift to accommodate beginning a family and settling down, and uh, we were really excited about it, had the wedding of my dreams, everything, you know, going on track and, and as planned, and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, we started trying to have our first child together, and it didn't happen um, uh, right away, and so that was a, a little bit stressful and discouraging, but, you know, part of the fun was keeping with it, and so yeah, <laughs> um, over time, we were blessed um with my wonderful Sammy, um, who's my firstborn. I now have three children mm-hmm. um, who are all under the age of uh, 11. And uh, Samantha's our, our firstborn. She just turned 10. Um, so pretty much within the first uh, two years of being married is when uh, we found out we were going to have our first child together, and that was Sammy. Oh, gosh. Okay, so Sammy is 10. And then um, give me the ages of your other children. And then her sister is seven, um, and then I also have um, a wonderful son who just turned five. Oh, so and so, did you already have all three of your children before you started noticing something with Sammy? Um, no, actually, and um, that's something I really wanted to speak to today um, because uh-huh. having a child diagnosed with autism um, really. there's so much to navigate, Um, and in particular if it's your first child, um, Mm -hmm. because as a a couple, you know, who hadn't been around a lot of children, I'm an only child. My husband certainly had been around kids before, um, Mm -hmm. and at one point was a camp counselor, so he was familiar with all the milestones that they hit and Mm -hmm. um, just, um, you know, their play activities and and how children interact with each other. Uh, But I had less experience with that being an only child. And so when we first had Sammy, um, we, in hindsight, um, we now know that there were signals all the way along. Uh But when you have your first child, you don't necessarily know what's, you know, quote, unquote, normal or, you know, um, with their development. And so everything, you know, you're a doting parent. So everything Uh they do is adorable, even if it's Uh something that's 
you know, a little awkward or different. It's like, oh, isn't that adorable? Or, oh, she's packing those blocks just perfectly, all facing the same direction. Or, you know, things that now in hindsight we realize were little clues that we didn't Uh initially recognize. Uh So there's that portion of it. And then, you know, you always try to identify some of your own characteristics in your baby when you first have a baby. Like, oh, isn't that adorable? She does this just like daddy. Or... Isn't that adorable? She's just like me. You know, it's, you know, we have a tendency to um, sort of rationalize some of those signs and not catch them early on. Um, so that's one of the things I wanted to really drive home today with the audience is, you know, um, we all love our babies. They're so precious. They're gifts from God. And um, the best thing you can do for them in life is pay close attention, but pay close attention with an open mind and an open heart. Mm-hmm. There are going to be people that might see things that you might not recognize because you're so close to them, mm-hmm. and it's very important to remain open and hear what people are saying and listen to what they're saying. Now, it doesn't mean everyone's always going to be right interpreting your child. You know mm-hmm. your child better than anyone, mm-hmm. um, and I want to be, you know, very... Um, direct about that. Ultimately, you know your child best, but there are going to be times where it might take um, the insight of someone else to point things out to you that you do not recognize because of lack of experience. Like I Mm -hmm. said, Sam was our first baby, and so um, she had delayed speech um, and, you know, not knowing what that um, timeline was for what words she should be saying and at what age we really didn't catch that um, initially. Um, and although she was having regular pediatric visits, you know, they also didn't cue in on a lot of these things because we weren't asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, you might think, well, if something's wrong with my child, you know, we're taking her to the doctor all the time. Why aren't they seeing it? There are a lot of things in my personal experience that play into that. Number one, when you go to see a doctor, if you're not bringing up you know, concerns um, that you notice um, because you're simply not recognizing them. Um, The doctors might also miss that, particularly children that have mild autism. Um, Sammy's, um, I would say, moderate, um, and she has um, Asperger's. Um, But she is high-functioning. So, you know, um, now if you met her, it would take you probably inside of an hour to realize that she was on the spectrum. So we've Mm. done a lot of work with her, but it's there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, your doctor um, might not see it initially. So really, in our case, what opened our eyes um, was a family member, my mother-in-law to be exact, who had been um, a child, um, a kindergarten uh, teacher in Boston, hmm. very experienced with young children and early education. Um, she um, was a director of a Head Start program in Massachusetts for many, many years. Um, and it was one Christmas on a visit home when Sam was um, the first time, probably about eight months, um, that she first noticed that something was not quite uh, right with Samantha. Um, and it was very difficult for her knowing that and seeing those signs to verbalize that to her son or to me uh-huh. because um, we're a very, very close-knit family. And, um, you know, she was worried about hurting us because she could see how in love with this baby we both were. It was our first uh-huh. child. We're high school sweethearts, and this, you know, was a part of our, our dream come true to have a baby together. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so she hesitated to tell us. And then a, a little bit of time went by. She gave it some time to see, you know, if it was maybe just an anomaly. And, you know, some kids, they are delayed in starting certain things. Um, but it continued. Um, we got one or two words from Sam initially. Um, and then nothing else. It just stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, she always had attachment problems. Um, and I remember, actually, uh, I'll, I'll back, um, you know, Rewind a little bit. One of the Uh first signals, and this is going to take people by surprise, uh, one of the first signals that we ever had but did not recognize at the time, but now when I look back on her history as a baby, when she was born, um, and we had a lovely experience with uh, the doctors and the nurses and everyone in the hospital um, that delivered her um, and had a wonderful um, OB um, throughout my entire pregnancy, great pregnancy care, um, but when Sammy was delivered, um, they swaddled her as they do many young babies, which is supposed uh-huh. to be very comforting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they bring them to you and you have them in your arms and they're in this little swaddle. And um, the first thing uh, my husband and I noticed, he was in the hospital with me and we had, after the exhausting birth, they swaddled her, put her next to us, and uh, we were in the room. I was going to sleep. And all of a sudden, we both heard this grunting, like if someone was in pain, if she was in pain. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a struggle to get out of the binding, to get out Ah. of the swaddling. And Uh she's hours old. Um, Oh, my gosh. So that was one of the first signals um, because, obviously, you know, the sensory experience, I guess, was too much for her. And Mm -hmm. even at hours old, she was trying to escape the, the binding feeling of being in a swaddle. And then um, as days went on, it continued with um, uh, trying to get her to nurse, and we went to lactation specialist, and one of the nurses even said to me, I've never seen anything like this. Um, It was a very stressful and painful ordeal for me and for the baby because, you know, you've got to get them going. They've got to start eating. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the nurses said, um, the lactation specialist said, I've never seen anything like this. Um, This baby seems to be overly attached to you. Um, and maybe if we try these special nipples or these special bottles, we can get her going. And it, it was a combination of keeping her very close to me where she seemed comforted um, and trying to get her um, nursing and, and going um, with eating. So everything at that point was sensory-related, and she seemed irritated by everything that was sensory-related, uh-huh. um, even clothing. Um, I remember her not liking sleeves. Um, so there were signs along the way, and then, of course, there was the loss of language. Um, other, um, symptoms were, you know, uh, parallel playing, um, she didn't, you know, interact with other children. She could be in a room full of toddlers and just completely be, um, preoccupied with a task that she was interested in, um, so, you know, there, there were things along the way, uh. And, you know, it took my mother-in-law pointing those differences out to us for Uh us to recognize um, that we had to have her um, evaluated. Oh, and so and and so this was started at about eight months. When did when did she finally how old was Sammy when she finally said, look, we need to talk. I think I think we have something with the baby. So was she now like a year? No, she um, we went as long as three. um, Ah before um, we took her to the doctor. 
mm-hmm. and um, basically they directed us to some specialists, um, a pediatric specialist that was able to run a couple of tests on her and diagnose her uh, as being on the spectrum. I see. All right. Well, th- this is so, so valuable, Catherine. The things that you have told us, I have so many questions I want to ask you. Let's take a little break, a real quick one, because I want to come back really quickly and ask Catherine some more questions and, and listen to her story a little bit more. This is so interesting and helpful for, for everyone out there. So let's take a little break. Now, back to Renee Steelman for more Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com. Hi, thank you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for coming back. I am Renee Steelman, the host of Heaven Sent and Bent, and today we're talking about autism. And statistics show that autism hits one in every 68 families uh they're they're being di- diagnosed as a, american children one in every 68 children are being diagnosed being on the spectrum and so when you put it in the perspective of 68 families are being affected with autism um i, I it, there's so many so many questions that come up and Catherine, i like what you were saying before we went to break about um advice for people to listen to others and that's such a a scary thing because i know you know, when I had my first few children, um, everything was just great. Everything went great. And so even with my, my youngest one that was born with some problems, um, you know, um, I recognized that there was a more problem and he had physical things that I could, you know, that you couldn't deny. So it was easy for me to recognize things. But, you know, people in my family, you know, kind of dismissed it. And, and so, and then when I had my first uh, grandson, he had some things and then the second grandson came along and he had some issues. And then I started to get kind of paranoid and I started looking at all, every time one of my grandchildren would, you know, would come over, I would look at them and I'd go, oh no, oh no, you know. And so my kids started teasing me. It's like, oh my gosh, mom, you're diagnosing everybody, you know. So then when I started seeing similar things to what you were seeing in one, a couple of my grandkids, I didn't want to say anything because I thought, am I just a kook? Am I just, have I just gone off the deep end and now I think everybody's has Asperger's or everybody is autistic or everybody has, you know, um, some kind of attention deficit problem or whatever. So, so, but it is, I love that advice to listen to others because, you know, little things like with my one grandson, I remember bouncing him on my knee and there was no muscle tone there. Um, he didn't know how to kick his feet. You know, normally you bounce a child and he, he starts to bounce with you and, and this little guy would just crumble. And he couldn't sit up. I would put him in a baby swing and he couldn't sit up. He would just lay back. And, um, so things like that. But, you know, I would kind of say things and, and, you know, they would kind of look at me like, butt out, lady, you know. So, um, and I, and I also, you know, love that you noticed the sensory things because that's something that, um, I think is a a big sign that's that's there that people don't really key into. Um, when you say that the nurses noticed that she was overly attached, what did they mean by that? Well, it seemed the only time she wasn't screaming is when she was with me. <laughs> okay. And so they um, described that as she was overly attached to her mommy, which at the time, again, your first baby, you're like, well, 
she should be attached to me, right. you know, and you're right. not reading that as something that could possibly be wrong with her. And those were hard days. I mean, I had to take her everywhere. I nursed her. She would never take a bottle. Right. Um, we would have to pull over on the side of the road uh, to nurse her because, like most children, young babies, you put them in the car and you drive to calm them down. That right. absolutely agitated her. Uh, uh, so to get anywhere, you know, if I had a 20-minute drive, you better bake an hour in there because I'd have to stop at intervals and nurse her to calm her down and snuggle and hold her. Um, so she did like being with myself and uh, my husband. Um, she was very attached to us, um, uh, which, you know, in hindsight to me is not a problem. She continues right. to be very close to us, and we provide her comfort. But, right. you know, pretty early on we had lots of clues that sensory discomfort was a big part of the type of autism that she had. Right. And, um, you know, finding some help for those to at least help them feel comfortable in their skin right. goes a long way in addressing some of the other deficits that they have. And I, I just want to point out, you just said something really important, which is, you know, people thought, oh, lady, you must be a kook thinking, diagnosing everyone on the spectrum. Well, right. Um, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I will tell you this. Um, in my experience, learning about how to take care of an autistic child and reading things and going to lectures and trying to get my hands on every bit of material and tools to care for our daughter, mm -hmm. it occurred to me that, you know, we're all on the spectrum. That's why it's called a spectrum. All right. And there are these extremes uh, that these children fall into. Um, that's why you have some that have mild autism moderate, mm -hmm. severe to severe to, you know, there's some people that said, you know, Albert Einstein was on the spectrum, and then you have right. Gates and people like that. Right. So we're all on the spectrum in some way, shape, or form. You know, you have some people that are extremely social, like myself uh -huh. and like you, uh -huh. mm -hmm. and then you have people, some people that, you know, they're not social at all. Now, right. that's on the spectrum. Right. Um, but it, and autism, from what I've learned, has been around forever, but we're only just recently um, recognizing that there are people that have this different brain chemistry um, and neural, uh, sort of you need a neurologist really to pinpoint each and every person what their deficits are um, in the brain development because that's what it is. It's a, a shift and a change in brain development either um, before they're born or, you know, when they're born, I, you know, they're still trying to figure out exactly when it happens. But I personally believe that um, this is something that she came into the world with um, mm -hmm. just because of the early signs that we had when I look back in hindsight that were always there. Now, right. I will say that um, there are factors in the environment that enhance or can agitate what autism is right. um, because we noticed um, certain activities um, being in certain environments would seem to aggravate some of the symptoms that she had as an aut autistic child. Um, now, they weren't the causes, but they certainly right. would heighten what was already there. And so okay. over time, we learn how to kind of lessen um, that stress for her. And mm -hmm. so I think in our particular case, uh, we immediately looked at occupational therapy for her. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, and I'm not you know, I, I would say every autistic child is different. That's the first right. thing everyone should know. Yes, right. there are these signs and these sig signals that you get and um, certainly um, flapping and, um, you know, screaming, sometimes tantrums, uh, being sensitive to lights. There's so many different cues. 
but uh-huh. every child is different. So I encourage every parent to not label your child and categorize your child, you know, in a box. You need to look at that individual child right. and what their symptoms are and address them individually. In our right. particular case, we started with occupational therapy because um, the sensory part for Sam seemed to be the most distressing for her. And ah. so we, we looked into doing um, things like deep pressure um, and, and joint compression therapy for her um, for calming. And um, we, we went to a um, center where she could sit in a swing and, and be um, in an enclosed and dark uh, place swinging um, to help mm-hmm. calm her slow swinging motions, uh-huh. um, and this is a child that in a playground, um, she could be on a swing for hours or on one of those twirly toys that spin around endlessly uh-huh. and never get dizzy, and that right. in itself was unusual, but uh-huh. in her brain, somewhere in the center of her brain, that continuous motion was very calming to her, whereas if you or I did it, we would instantly become dizzy. Right. So, their brain chemistry really is different, and it's watching these cues and things that they do enjoy and that comforts them so that you can get other information through to them. I think that is the key thing. You know, one of the funny things that we did early, early on when she first got the diagnosis is we, we brushed her. And this might sound oh. unusual to people, but uh, for individuals that know and love horses, you know how you brush horses, and uh-huh. you know, it's very comforting to a horse to get their mane brushed. Um, Believe it or not, that was one of the most therapeutic things for her when she was a young baby. They gave us this special brush, um, and we were instructed, we were taught how to do it by the therapist, the occupational therapist, on how to brush her every night, and it had to be done at the same time every day, a couple times a day, and at night before bedtime. Um, And that would calm her um, and help her get used to the sensation of things touching her skin, um, clothing, pajamas, um, things that she couldn't tolerate early mm-hmm. on. So the ah. sensory part is critical early on, um, but even before that, early intervention. Uh-huh. Um, the worst thing that you could possibly do if you even suspect that your child has autism or any disorder of any kind is to sit on your hands and do nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot stress that enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so many parents, because they're wounded personally or they play the blame game on each other um, and they don't want to accept the reality, sit on their hands and do nothing. And while you're doing that, they're getting older, the clock's ticking, time, time is against you, mm-hmm. and they're not getting the help they are going to so desperately need to succeed as adults. Mm-hmm. Right. The end goal really is, you know, parents, and I, I learned this early on with my baby, as I look at her every day still, all my children, and I constantly tell myself I have to plan for their future because my husband and I are not always going to be on the planet with them. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. yes, you have family members and you have, you know, friends and neighbors and relatives and community support to a certain extent, but ultimately when you bring a child in the world, they're your responsibility. And it's up to you to do your best to put them in the best position possible, regardless of if they're handica- handicapped in some way or not. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at Sam, everything I do and everything my husband does is driven by the fact that she has to learn how to survive and take care of herself um, when we're not here. And we 
are raising all three kids, her siblings, mm-hmm. um, to be there for each other, to love and support each other. And the funny thing is, we really don't use the word autism in the house at all. Um, mm. In fact, um, my other children are not that familiar with the term. I'm sure ah. they've heard us say it, you know, here or there, uh-huh. but we haven't yet sat down and, you know, pointed out to them, well, your sister Sammy is on the spectrum. She has autism. Yeah. Right. And, you know, some professionals might disagree with that approach, and that's why I say you, you have to make certain decisions for yourself. It's best for you and your family because uh-huh. you know your child or children, and we don't want to forget that they're siblings sometimes in the equation. Right. And for our family, um, my goal was to have her siblings and her grow up together having, you know, a happy childhood interacting with each other. And mm-hmm. thank God I had the two other children because that's been very helpful with her mm. socialization because they force uh-huh. her and challenge her to do things that she might not otherwise do. Uh-huh. And so they've been a blessing to her. And she's been a blessing to them because in some ways she teaches them things um, that they might not otherwise be exposed to because she's on a different learning curve than they are. Right. Um, or she might be more in tune to something because of her sensory perception that they mm-hmm. are totally oblivious to. Right. Um, so it, it's really been um, a very compatible synergy um, for the children, and I think the key thing that I try to do is encourage them to be there for each other so that someday, you know, if we're not around, they can be each other's community, and that is right. critical if there's siblings involved. Mm-hmm. But back yeah. to the sitting, the parents sitting on the hands. Um, the reason it's so important to just, you know, as you would say in plain words, just get over yourself. You know, get over yeah. your ego, get over your community, you know, reputation or whatever, you know, you want people to think about you and think about your child and what their needs are. Put that first because the earlier you can get them help, at least by age three or before, the better results you can get. Um, Where Sammy is today, Renee, I never thought we would see. Mm. I remember when we first went into the specialist, um, we used a facility here in Portland called the Arts Center, Mm -hmm. and it was pretty comprehensive. They had occupational therapists, they had speech therapists, they had hearing experts, sight, everything. And so we immersed her in, in everything they had to offer, had her tested for everything, had blood work, everything, just trying to really get a handle on, okay, what is it exactly that we're dealing with so that we can go to task and try to address as much as we can and, and give her the support that she needs. Mm-hmm. And um, once we, we were able to, you know, rule out certain neuro, uh, uh, neurology issues and, um, you know, dietary issues that, a lot of people think are a major factor. Once we were able to get away from those things, then we went into dealing with the occupational therapy, her awareness of her body and space, um, how to feel comfortable in environments, um, and then her speech, because the speech mm-hmm. was a big factor. Right. Um, and one of the other reasons that you need to start really early is because if, if you get the diagnosis early, yes, they're going to label your child. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just a, a, a medical term so that they can get the help they need, both in the exactly. community and right. in the educational community, which is going to be critical later because if they don't get the support they need when they enter school, you are really going to be dealing with challenges beyond your control. So, right. you know, forget the label. They have to label them so they get the resources that they need um, to function as 
um, as preschoolers and, and later on high school and then into college. So uh-huh. that's fine. But um, as parents, don't let the label limit your expectations of that child. Um, just yeah. because they have autism doesn't mean they are not capable. And I think that is a mistake a lot of parents make. Right. Um, with Sam, like I said, there are things that she's doing now that I never thought when we first got that diagnosis we would ever see. And I remember right. going to the doctor and, and groups with other parents and, you know, asking, will she ever talk? Is she going to be able to feed herself, you know? What can we expect? Because you're completely lost. You you just right. don't know what their capabilities are going to be. Will she ever understand what I mean when I, I tell her I love her? Does she Will she know what love is? You know, right. all of these questions that you have. And really, um, I would say the doctors back then, they were afraid to answer certain things because mm-hmm. they know every child is different. Right. So there's no one magic bullet that they're going to say, well, by age seven, we'll have her speaking. And right. by age 10, she will be, you know, interacting with her peers. And right. she'll be able to tell you she loves you. There's no one magic bullet. There's no one um, strategy for each child. You just have to take each child a time, you know, at a time, one at a time. Right. And now, did, did Sam, did Sam kind of, I know a lot of cases like, um, you know, like you were saying that they all have different strengths and, and, um, you know, uh, you gave examples of like Albert Einstein and they talk, you talk about, you know, Bill Gates and, and people like that, that probably are on, you know, Steve Jobs was probably on the spectrum, you know, right. um, in my grandson's case, um, he's three years old and he's completely reading. And he basically taught himself to read. He, he is in, you know, his area of focus is letters, the alphabet. And mm-hmm. so he will, you know, recite the alphabet um, all the time and recognize, read, he's reading words off of signs and, and, um, you know, so that's kind of his focus. My, my other grandson, um, you know, he's, he was focused on whales for when he was younger and he knew everything about whales. And, um, you know, they, they, I know that's kind of common where they'll, they'll latch on to an interest and then stick with that interest and, and, um, you know, and, and, but it's it, it, exactly what I wanted to talk about a couple of things you said. When my daughter was trying to get a diagnosis for her son, one of the things that they saw was, uh, well, she saw the overly attached, uh, part right they looked at that and they said "Hmm, that's odd Uh, most kids with autism don't like to be touched don't want to be you know don't make eye contact you know this kind of Mm -hmm. thing but he's doing he really wants to be on your lap and and she said yeah but only me he doesn't let anybody else you know and so sometimes even the experts get fixated on one part of the spectrum and then they'll, you know, they'll even, in, and then my other grandson's diagnosis, they looked at the fact that he was very verbal and um, so they ruled out autism because it was, oh, well, he's really verbal. And it's like, well, yeah, but let's talk about the fact that he just memorized the Chronicles of Narnia and he's eight, you know, right. um, or doesn't make eye contact and doesn't like to be touched and can't stand to have, you know, a lot of sensory, a lot of sensory things. So sometimes you, like you say, you have to be the advocate for your child because even the experts will sometimes fixate on one part of it. Go, no, 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 no. They, they don't, you know, they don't have autism. And then, like you say, without that label, without that diagnosis, you sometimes struggle to get the help that you need, you know. Um, Absolutely. So, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. But um, so, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that um, one of your grand um, children 
was fixated on letters and, um, you know, and there are different things like that that are signals. In fact, one of our aha moments, again, in hindsight, um, was, you know, we went to a simple shopping excursion um, to a Best Buy electronics store, and uh, she was with us, and we were standing in line, and there was a sign at the front of the line um, that said, wait here. And she just all of a sudden looked at it and read it, and she was three. And my husband and I looked at each other like, did you tell her what that was? No, I didn't tell her. And then we realized we did a couple of little tests, and she was reading. She had taught herself how to read. Um, So there are these little gifts. And, again, I I would encourage parents not to get sidetracked by things like that because, I'll tell you, when we first realized that, we were like, wow, our kids are super smart. This is awesome. Right, right. Um, not realizing and recognizing, again, this is a, a sign that something else might be going on. Um, she's an early reader. Um, right. That is great. But there's something else going on here. Because later, as um, you know, she taught herself um, letters and the alphabet, she was fixated, like you said, on everything that had to do with letters. Uh-huh. And as she began school, we then realized, well, you know, she's reading fluently, would re- memorize entire books. And right. at bedtime, when it was time to read bedtime stories, she would hold us accountable when we try to sneak, you know, uh-huh. shorten a story <sighs> yeah, um, to get yeah. to bed faster. She'd be like, you know, like she knew that we weren't reading it the way it was supposed to be read because she had memorized it. And so, you know, those are things that, again, can kind of sidetrack parents from what the mission is because they feel so proud that they're so smart uh-huh. and right. they have these extraordinary abilities. You know, I know there's some kids in Sam's class that, you know, when they're bored, they multiply by, you know, multiples of nine just for fun. Uh-huh. And, yeah. you know, as a parent, you're like, oh, my kid's three years old and can multi- do the entire yeah. time scale. Yeah. And you're proud yeah. of that. Yeah. But you can't let those abilities sidetrack you from, okay, there's something else going on here and we need to pay attention and give them the support in the other areas where they don't have abilities at all or have very weak abilities. So, you know, I, I, I urge parents to really stay in tune to that. Um, and also, you know, something I noticed more recently is as Sam uh, gets older, she has seemed to... Um, become less autistic, if you will, and I, I don't right. know, you know, that's not a medical diagnosis because I'm right. not a doctor, right. but just right. as her mom, um, I've noticed some of those extraordinary abilities that she had early on. She was very photographic, could remember everything visually, memorize mm-hmm. books. Um, you know, she she still has a wonderful ability for writing and spelling, Um but as she gets older, some of that is starting to drift away a little bit as some of the other deficits are filling in. Oh. Um, so it's sort of a, I don't know. She's kind of evening out. She's kind of yeah. evening out a little bit. Yeah, and emotionally it's a little bit of a roller coaster ride too because there are those aspects of the being on the spectrum that, again, as a parent you're really proud of, but then as right. they start to shift and kind of get a little more to the center, you see some of those abilities drifting away. But then again, they're being replaced by the ability to be more social and to be more aware um, and engage with people and give people more eye contact. So it's a little bit of, you know, things start to balance out in some individuals. And again, I I stress that every child's journey is different. So you have to pay close attention to what's going to work for your child and and what you need to do to, you know, give them what they need to function. Right. Um, 
Now, do you have her in a regular public school, or have you, do you have her in a special uh, room? Well, that's a very good question because early on we were, you know, grappling with um, should we put her in a special um, education situation um, because we, you know, both my husband and I went to public schools. Um, we're originally from the East Coast, Boston, and um, we both went to public school there and always wanted to have our, our kids engage in the public school system. Um, we mm-hmm. feel so many people are leaving it, and that's one of the reasons that public schools kind of go into crap because they're not uh-huh. good parents still in, you know, public schools supporting it that are hands-on. Right. Um, and, you know, we didn't want to fall into that category where we're, we have the, the means to put our kid in a private situation and the public schools are running to hell. So. We right. wanted to stay engaged, and, um, you know, then we had this additional challenge of, well, our child actually is special needs, so that's even right. more of a challenge. But right. um, because she got that early intervention and um, the autism diagnosis, we then became aware of all of these uh, programs through the public school system that were available to her, and uh-huh. we decided to go that route and see how how it would go, mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, we were lucky enough to work with um, some terrific people um, um, that head up the special education program um, for Portland Public School and um, a couple of autism consultants for PPS, and they kind of walked us through um, what it is to, to have a child go through the public school system with autism, and they put them on something called IEP, which kind of evaluates them regularly, um, sets goals for them, educational goals and social skills goals, and they educate toward that. They are put into a special classroom separate mm-hmm. from the general population until they're at a level that they can start to mainstream them. Um, right. And that's, for us, what the, the direction that we went in because, you know, my husband and I sit and talk about this sort of thing all the time where Sam's concerned. Mm-hmm. And, again, our our um, ideology is, okay, the world is not made up of this special classroom that she's going to be living in. You know, she's right. going to be part of society at large. And right. the only way to give her the tools to function without us is for her to be in the mix with who mm-hmm. the people that are going to be her peers, rather they're you know, mainstream kids or special needs kids, she's got to have exposure. And right. that is, again, one of the key points that I want to drive home is that one of the most important things you can do for kids on the spectrum is expose them to new things, new people. It's critical to keep them engaged in the world that they're actually going to be living, hopefully working in and, and building relationships in. I think to a certain extent, if they are capable, if they're high-functioning enough that you can have them in a regular school setting, in right. our particular case, um, that's been a choice that we, we feel we've made a good choice there. Right. Um, and I'm not saying it was easy because, you know, right. you're going to have is- your typical school issues where you have some people that show up and they punch the clock and go home or right. you have constant turnover, um, you know, so there's a different teacher all the time because teaching autistic kids or special needs kids is a very high-stress job. And so right. retaining truly talented and devoted and dedicated people is a challenge for the school system. But that's right. where parents can play a role, too, really parents that are engaged and advocate for their kids. And there are so many wonderful, wonderful teachers in the system. In right. fact, 
I'll tell you the first placement that Sammy got when we put her in kindergarten, um, after they did all the evaluations and the testings um, to get her assigned to a school that had a program, they placed her in um, what they call an academic, um, um, what was it, a CB class, I think. Um, um, I believe that's what she was in first. Uh And when she went, the first day she was in that class, the teacher that was there immediately noticed that, my goodness, this girl, her placement is wrong. She knows how to spell her name. She writes fluently. She can read. And uh, granted, back then, Sammy had no comprehension of what she was reading. She could just look at a word and know what that word was and read like she knew what she was reading. Right. There was no comprehension because the the concept of getting ideas hadn't yet, you know, hadn't come to the front of her brain yet. But she could look at something and read it, even if she knew what she wasn't reading. And she could write her name. And and so the children in that class were more severely autistic. And, you know, some of them had motor skill issues, couldn't hold a pencil. And so she immediately contacted us and said, I think your daughter's been um, placed in the wrong setting. Um, oh my gosh. And so she advocated to get her into a more advanced autism classroom where the kids are more high functioning. Uh-huh. And if it, if it were not for her, we would have uh-huh. never known the difference. And so right. that was the first step of these little people that are like angels that help guide you along the way. Yes. are devoted to what they're doing. And yes. so she got the right placement got into that classroom, and it was a little rocky initially. Again, turnover is an issue. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my husband's really good at writing letters and really good at pounding on doors, and so um, we were able to, you know, get some consistency in her her education and the support and, and hold their feet to following the IEP that mm-hmm. was set up for her ah. um, and regular meetings with her teachers and with her speech therapist because they do provide um, – speech therapy in the school programs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say the, between the speech therapist, we were very fortunate that we had a very good speech therapist, Jeannie Bartholomew, who um, just retired, unfortunately. Um, but um, very, very terrific advocate for our Sammy. She saw promise in her mm-hmm. and even outside of her work schedule, um, took my husband and I under her wing to go learn about different uh, speech therapies for Sam and different equipment that we could invest in to use within our home uh, to help support right. what she was doing in the school setting because some of the equipment that she would have wanted to use with Sam wasn't available through public mm. school. Ah. But since we have the means, we were able to get those things and work with her, with Sam, to get better results. And so you get people like that that provide you with information and set you on the right course and put you on the right track, and you just follow that track until right. the next hurdle. Right. And so, you know, that's kind of the way that we went until we couldn't um, – there was no more benefit at that point. And then right. um, we then had encouragement from um, an adapt- adaptive PE educator. Um, because they, they are mainstreamed in gym class with the regular kids, but um, a couple times a week they have adaptive PE where they do core strengthening and things to help them, again, feel better in their body and deal with sensory and um, motor skills. Uh-huh. Um, and there was one adaptive PE teacher um, who, again, came to us in one of our IEP meetings and said, you know, I think your daughter is capable of X, Y, Z, and I think she's being held back because she has oh. this label. 
Um, oh. The classroom is not, you know, um, we need to get her out mainstreaming a little bit more um, because at that point they weren't mainstreaming her enough. Oh. And um, this educator thought she could take more and that we needed to push her. And, again, as a parent, um, and, you know, I hope I speak to parents everywhere that deal with the issue of you're scared sometimes to push them. Right. But you know what? It's good for them. They're not going to break. And it right. took me time to learn that because I'm a very protective mom. I really am. And right. um, it took some time for me to accept, you know what, you've got to give her a chance to fly because if you don't let her fly, she's not going to ever learn how to fly. Right. And so um, with that encouragement, we, we pushed her into mainstream a little bit more. And we've been able to basically balance when when she needs to be pulled back a little bit, but we at least give her the opportunity. One yeah. of the highlights of the whole public school um, process with her is when one of her teachers came to me. Oh, we had to move her from one school to a, another, too. Let me just say that to, for better oh. services. So sometimes oh. it involves you, you know, really doing your research and, again, writing letters and, you know, the old adage, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So if, yeah. You, yeah. As, if you're a parent advocating and you're engaged enough, you can find the resources for your child. You just have to pay attention, and be in their face and hold people accountable for what they legally are supposed to be doing. Ah. So um, we got her into a wonderful school, and um, we're at the point now where she's thriving, and one of the highlights of uh, you know her experience in this particular school is when her mainstream teacher came to me and asked me, how do you feel about your daughter performing in the school play? And when she said that, you know, I was looking at my husband. She, is she talking about someone else's kid? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Out in front of other like, people? Oh what are you talking yeah. to get up on a stage and actually perform something? Right. Because one of the things with autism is that kids do get so fixated. Uh-huh. And so you, they're, they're terrible at taking tests because you can never get out of them what you want to get out of them. They will give you what they are interested in at that given time and moment. So to have her be on a stage executing and cued to say particular lines at a a particular time terrified me because you just never know what's going to come out. (laughs) Um, And so I, you know, I thought about it for a little bit and I said, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? If she doesn't do well, at least she's tried. Let's give her an opportunity to do it. And we did, and it turned out they gave her a script that she had to practice and memorize. And, again, memorization is one of her strengths. Right. It turned out that this particular activity was made for her because she would come home and she would practice lines with my husband and I. And then one of the things to encourage children on the spectrum, too, that we found out pretty early on was you've got to relate everything they do to reality. Um, The play was um, about Portland, the Portland history, Um, and one of the the sections that she had to uh, perform on stage was talking about the little park, the world's smallest park in downtown Portland, which is like a little tiny little island in downtown Portland. And um, as she was memorizing her little section of saying that, we decided, you know what, let's take the family downtown so she can see where this landmark is, feel it stand on it, be there, you know, so that she can make that real-world connection. Okay. And that is a critical part of working and educating them is whatever they're obsessed about, you've got to bring it into the real world. So they, so in other words, <clears throat> what you're saying is 
um, cause I've noticed this, uh, like I said, with some of my grandchildren too. Um, er- everything is literal. Everything, yeah. is, you know, and so fantasy, even playing, playing dolls or this kind of stuff, that's not, they're not interested in that because that's not reality. It's right. like, well, but it's not a baby or it's, but it's not of this or it's not of that. So that doesn't make sense in their head. They're to, very to, specific and literal. Right, right. Interesting. Very specific and literal. And so that's why it's critical to make those connections to tangible right. for them. Um, and, and cue in on that sensory. They've got to touch, feel, and experience certain things to really get the concept of an idea. Abstract is extremely difficult for them. Everything is very literal. Um, right. And that's difficult to deal with in a family setting. Yes. Um, so it takes a lot of practice. Yeah. Um, but it forces us in a lot of ways to slow down. <laughs> yeah. And to experience certain things with them, which, you know, has its own joys. So we enjoy exactly. very much doing things with Sam. And um, as far as the speech part and just her connecting to the world, because she's very um, tech-oriented, too. Ah. She, if, if you would allow her, she would be on a computer forever in a day. And right. she she knew how to use a computer even before we taught her how to use a computer. There are just certain right. skills they pick up, and then they just latch on to that. Right. But we quickly learned we had to monitor it because she was so parallel play and so focused. She has intense focus. Right. She could tune out everything that was going on and just almost climb into the computer screen. Yes. And I knew right away that was not a good thing. And so my husband and I put limitations on it. And, you know, and it's a great thing to use for discipline, too. You know, if she doesn't yeah. do something she's supposed to do, ah, no computer time today. Right. Um, because that's the other part that's complicated for parents is how do you discipline these children? Um, yeah, yeah. That's something very near and dear to my heart because um, having an autistic child makes you very observant of um, other people and how they treat their kids when you're right. out in public. Right. And I have to say, I had to stop shopping at certain stores <laughs> because I emotionally could not take what I was seeing, how certain children were being treated. And right. like you, you know, I might be a crazy lady and I might see a kid and go, you know, that kid might be on the spectrum because yeah. you start recognizing certain signals. And then right. to watch a parent um, who's unaware treat them poorly, mm-hmm. um, I, I literally could not take it. Um, so... My husband told me to stop shopping there. I would probably end up in jail for slapping someone. Yeah, and that's not good. Well, Catherine, we've got a couple minutes left, and we're going to wrap it up. What would you say probably, you know, this whole experience, and you've given us so many, so many wonderful, you know, such good insight into the the whole spectrum and and the world, you know. um, What would you say the, the the hardest thing has been just kind of summarize your experience if you can what's been the hardest thing and then what's been the greatest thing about having this i know you mentioned you know your other children and and what it's done for them and i know that's true in our family as well um what what would you say to wrap it up has been the best and maybe the worst of times Okay, well, let's start with the worst of times so we can end on a high note. <laughs> okay, good idea. Um, the worst of times w- would be getting the diagnosis and then having to face that with your spouse. So many marriages fall apart over, you know, autism diagnosis. It's so sad, the statistics of families that fall apart and yeah. husbands and wives that get divorced. Right. I've been very blessed with a fabulous, fabulous husband. Um, we're longtime sweethearts from high school. Right. And so even in our strong foundation as, you know, with a relationship that spanned many years, 
high school, college, careers, traveling, everything. It was very taxing on our relationship, very taxing. And so it takes um, a tremendous amount of fortitude to kind of navigate through that, um, accepting what's happening with your child, but also addressing your own, you know, blame and, you know, it's your fault, it's my fault, what did we do wrong, all of those things. And then just the exhaustion of dealing with it there's a moment in time where your relationship isn't at the front of the the, the burner. You know, you have to take right. a back seat to that. And right. so I think one of the things to keep in mind is not only getting your child early intervention, but also seeking some family therapy so that you wow. can work through it and kind of try to keep that marriage solid. Because the therapy for your child is not going to be successful if the household is broken. Right. And that is That's critical. So, Both parents have to be on board with the program. Right. And, you know, as um, skeptical as you are about some of these therapies or brushing a child with a brush, right. keep an open heart, keep an open brain, and, and try and what just you need to try, try to stay in the boat together. Works. Just try to do it together. Yeah. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today. This has just been an amazing oh, – I can't say that word. This has been a wonderful, wonderful show, and you have been so insightful. Um, for any of you that have any other questions, please, you know, I, I, get online. You can check it out. But I love AutismSpeaks.org. They have a lot of information on there. I hope that you will enjoy the rest of the day, and I hope that you will all join me next week where we can talk some more about trials and the the blessings of living on this earth. Bye-bye. See you next week. 